Welcome back, everybody, to the Dollars and Cents podcast. As per usual, you're listening to myself, which is Tim Ellis, and sitting right next to me is my co-host, Brody Haggerty. Both Brody and I are qualified financial advisors working with a company in Wellington called Fox Plan, where the aim of this podcast is to improve the financial literacy of our listeners. So uh, on this week's episode, we will be doing part two of our first series titled what does working with a financial advisor actually look like? But before we get underway with part two and a quick recap of last week's episode, Brody, if you'd do the honours and cover off the legal as per usual. Absolutely. Any information shared today is general of nature and should not be used as personalised financial advice. Seek relevant professionals before making any decisions. All right. I think I've said that about 40 times now. So You're getting better. <laughs> I, I mean, you, you know, I, I don't think we even need to re-record this week. You've, yeah. you've nailed it on your first attempt. I don't know why I got stuck with compliance, but so be it. Well, you love compliance, don't oh, you? I certainly do. Okay. Now, Tim, we said this was going to be a two-part series, but it looks like it's actually going to be a three-part series. Sorry about that. On this episode, we're going to talk through cash management, and then on the next episode, we're going to talk through investment and risk management. Um, but if you listen to this episode and feel that you need to go back and listen to the episode before, what you'll find there is us giving some detail around the six-step process that we actually follow in order to be able to get to the end result of providing recommendations and helping clients implement solutions. Um, so before we get into part two, just to recap what those six steps actually were. Step one was uh, establishing the relationship. Step two was collecting the data. Step three is analysing the data. Step four is providing the recommendation. Step five was implementing the recommendation. And then the last step of the six-step process is to review um, so again, if you want any more information about those different steps, what they actually mean or look like, or what you could expect as you're going through those steps, have a listen to last week's episode. But on, on this week's episode, Brody, do you want to introduce what we're actually trying to talk through or the messages we're trying to get across in, in, in this week's part two? Yeah, I think the messages we're trying to get across is what does that actually look like in practice? So we're thinking about the six-step process, but we're going beyond that. What does it look like? In practice, how do we put together recommendations and then what does that look like? Mm. And what does that look like for the client, more importantly? Yeah, so what what could they expect to see, feel, hear, yeah. understand or how they should be leaving that meeting and what they should be feeling that, you know, we've actually really looked into or considered? Yeah, and also linking that with their personality, their money personality and how they think about money because – no two clients are the same and people should be thinking about how they react to money when they're going through an advice process or mm. if they're doing stuff themselves, investing by themselves, they should be taking that stuff into account because behaviour plays a major part in outcomes when it comes to financial planning. Absolutely. Okay, so, well then, let, let's rip straight into this, uh, and as mentioned previously, we're, we're actually going to talk about... Uh, the key strategies that we focus on as advisors when preparing recommendations and financial plans and advice for our clients. But as a bit of a caveat before we get into our particular process, I think it's worth noting, Brody, uh, to be fair to the, the, the listeners, and we might have other advisors actually listen to the podcast as well, but you and I were mentored by 
the same people. We were trained by the same people and mentored by the same people that all follow the same um, evidence-backed, you know, philosophy of... We, we all drink the same Kool-Aid. We've drunk the same Kool-Aid. Couldn't have put it better my, myself. Absolutely. And there'll be other advisors that have had a completely different flavour Kool-Aid altogether. Yeah, and that's not a bad thing. It's, it's not a bad thing at all. They may have different key focuses that they feel are more crucial to providing good financial advice than the three key strategies that we focus to that we're about to talk through. Or they might be an advisor that only focuses on one of these key strategies and that's the very particular area that they provide advice in. And, you know, we're not here to bash other advisors and their process at all. Different clients will get different gains out of different kind of advisors. But the three key strategies that we're going to talk through wasn't just dreamt up out of nowhere. It has been, I mean, why did you drink the Kool-Aid and why do you continue to drink the Kool-Aid on these three key strategies from your perspective? It just makes sense, really. I think financial planning can sound complicated, but the way that our process works and the way that we explain it and the way it was explained to me made common sense and being able to use that and see it in practice, um, obviously over the years now, seeing that actually work. Mm. And it's understandable, which I think is so important in financial advice because if a client doesn't understand what's being said to them or what strategies or what philosophies or, or anything like that has been said to them, then they're going to have a hard time actually taking some action if they're confused. Yeah. So it's a simple way to to think about financial planning. Yeah, because, it, the, you know, some of the issues and the complex issues that clients have, which we will touch on, by the way, as we go through this, they can be so complex and made extremely complicated. And you know, to a small degree, I, I often wonder, do advisors overcomplicate things to try and prove their value? Because if it's so complex that when they're trying to explain things that the client can't even understand, does that come across as maybe that advisor is so so smart that they you can't even understand to the level that they do? I, I mean, that might work for some people, but for me, if I'm confused, I'm not likely to take action. Correct. And I think the... Well, the reason I got into the game was I enjoy seeing people's light bulb moment. I love the education piece. I love breaking down complex ideas, philosophies, explaining them in a way that people can understand and seeing them actually get it. That's that's great. That that, that for me is, is my passion, is seeing people understand complex things in, in an easy way. Yeah, I think that's our role. Isn't oh, it? I think so, yeah. Couldn't agree more. Um, and so the three key strategies that we focus on, uh, that it was, I think it was made very, very, very famous by a very famous um, advisor, uh, John F. Savage, uh, who really coined these, these three key strategies. And it's more than just three strategies on their own in isolation. It's actually about aligning these three different strategies so that they are all working in alignment with helping clients achieve their short, medium and, and long-term goals or the, the outcomes that they've come to ask you to help them to get. Which are very different for different people. I, I, extremely. And I think uh, we'll be able to give a few examples in, in each strategy. Um, and so 
John F. Savage, by the way, came from such a poor background, eight siblings, um, and and built a, an empire of financial advice. And still a company running today with, with his name as well. Died in 1993, so don't, don't anybody try and reach out to him for some advice. <laughs> <laughs> You'll struggle. But I think we've babbled on for long enough. Let's, let's rip straight into step one. Cash management. Bank. Gotta be. Yeah. The bank. This one is crucial. And M- money comes in, money comes out. Yeah. And some people have no idea what's coming in and what's going out. And more importantly, where where it's all actually going. Yeah, it's interesting the different types of clients you see in that in that stage, right? You've got the analytical type that is super focused on what the numbers look like and they probably know every detail to the cent. Whereas on the other side you've got people that are not so analytical and they don't really look at their bank statements. They, they don't have an idea that this is quite confronting to them, this part. Absolutely. And, you know, I've, I, I've, I've met people, one of my good friends, actually, funny enough, you could ask him any day, what is the balance of all of your different bank accounts? And he can tell you without looking at them exactly what his balance of every bank account is, how much is in there and what it's allocated for. Oh, that sounds stressful. Yeah, it works for him. Yeah. I mean, there's the right answer and then there's the answer that works for you and for him. Absolutely. That, that's what works for him. And, you know, that can be problematic as, as, as well in terms of stress and uh, how much money is, is on your mind. But what I find is for, for many people, this first strategy, the, the cash management, and for myself and, and to a large degree my wife as well, it's a key area that people struggle with. Um, it, it, there's a commonly accepted phrase, my money seems to grow wings and just fly away, or <laughs> I don't know what happens with our money. It, it, it seems to all go on the kids, um, but they have no idea. Um, and there's two types of money problems. There's not enough money and too much money. Mm-hmm. Both can be major roadblocks to achieving what's truly important to you. And I'm going to address the most common side of things, which is they're not having enough money. Yep. You 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 would have to admit that that would be the more common that, problem. That, that is that is the more common problem. I mean, I always see it as a scale, right? You've got on one side, you've got people that are frugal and they mm-hmm. don't like spending at all. They live well below their means and they always struggle to, to spend money. Mm-hmm. They usually fall on the too, too much money problem. They end up there. They end up there at some point. Yep, correct. And then on the other side, you've got the reckless so those that spend more than they're, they're coming in, they're racking up credit card debt, et cetera, and don't know where the money's going. Mm. And I think when when it comes to financial advice, both of those are a bad plan. I don't, agree I don't think being reckless is good, and I don't think being frugal is good. I think the, the middle ground, somewhere in the middle ground, is what you want if you're going to engage a financial advisor. I think there's a really good example of the extreme end of uh, of being frugal. Uh, I think you can actually Google this one, but the Witch of, oh, the Wall, Witch Street. of Wall Street. Yeah, Do you, you're aware of the yeah, Witch of yeah, Wall yeah, Street. Yeah, yeah, I've heard the story. It's, it's a goodie. Yeah. So, he, he, any idea of what her net worth was at the end? Oh, no idea. It was something ridiculous though, and she was tired as anything, wasn't she? Yeah. Well, she had she would sew up the hems <laughs> on her <laughs> dresses right. herself by hand, but she had millions in the bank. Millions upon millions upon millions yeah. upon millions. 
she was a, a, a very large, large figure on, on Wall Street, mm. and she could probably afford to buy all the clothing stores that could provide her with clothing for the rest of her life and, and, and all of her family as well. But she was still sew the hems on her own dresses. And so that's probably the extreme end of that. But as as I mentioned, I'm going to try and address the the more common issue, which is yeah. which is not enough money. Um, and this problem actually happens for people in all different pay brackets. It it, it it's a problem for people that are earning eighty, uh, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred, because you can't confuse cash flow with net worth. Those no. are two very, very different things. So I think put quite famously by Robert Kiyosaki, he's the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Uh, have you ever listened to his podcast or read any of his books? I've read his books, but I haven't listened to his podcast. It's hard to avoid the guy when you're in this industry. Um, but, yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and I don't agree with all of his philosophies, but uh, he is quite right in saying it's not how much money you make, it's about how much money you keep. Absolutely, because you you see people on huge incomes and they're not they're not increasing their net worth or their retirement nest egg year on year year on year they're just floundering it really. It, it, absolutely, and I have conversations with clients where uh, they actually have, in comparison, much smaller incomes, but our conversations are all based around where they're going on holiday this yeah, year yeah. and whether they're going to take the children or ditch them all. Uh, and, and they've got all the choices in the world. Why aren't you spending more? That's, but, a, that's a better conversation to have with the client, isn't uh, it? It's so much more enjoyable, but it's this key strategy of cash management that will dictate which camp you're actually in, whether you're in the wondering if we can afford to go on holiday versus... Where do we go on holiday? Do we want to take the kids? We can afford to if we want to, or we could go and do some things that we want to do without the children. Uh, and so, let's be fair. I don't think anybody actually. Well, very few people have fun doing budgeting. I mean, how do you do your budgeting yourself? No, I, I just run my budget. Um, I review it quarterly. Quarterly, yeah. And so, so you'll go through three months of expenses. Yeah, and then audit it. After three Tell me months. a bit more about your auditing. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll flesh out where the money went. So I'll draw out a, a spreadsheet from, from my bank um, statements to see where the money's going, and then I'll put it into a spreadsheet to say, where has it gone? Itemize it, categorize it. And this is this is where I get my analytical hat on because I do actually kind of enjoy that. Yeah. It's good to see the stats, you know, and it's interesting. It tells a story. It does. Numbers tell a story. And then I see, right, this is a section that's been particularly bad or particularly good this quarter. Do I need to change anything? Do I need to tweak anything? Is it, did I just have a bad quarter because I had a lot of stuff on? Mm. Uh, and then and then just adjust if I need to. But it's not really adjusting. It's more keeping an eye on things. Yeah, and, and quite often ignored and worse than ignored, uh, because like I said, uh, some people have no idea where their money's actually gone because they've never gone through that process. And if they have gone through that process, it might have been two or three years ago, mm. but then there was a change in circumstances. There was an increase in insp- expenses or there was a decrease in income, yet no adjustment to lifestyle or spending habits because they didn't keep an eye and control on knowing what's coming in and, and what's going out. And that can inevitably end in, in, in going broke if, if you don't manage to keep an eye and control on it. And if you're not aware, you will be aware of the change in circumstances, but if you're not aware of 
making any changes with regards to your income and, and expenditure, that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, lifestyle creep is a real thing. And if you're used to living at that level and then you have to dial it back because of whatever reason, it can be pretty tricky. Mm. And so one of the steps that we ask our uh, clients and prospective clients to go through before being able to provide them with a financial plan is actually taking a deep dive into looking at the income and expenditure. And I don't know about you, but I've noticed uh, some different groups of people and how they return that data to me before we get together for the discovery. And often, people that have no idea what's coming in and what's going out, they'll return that data where every column on the budget sheet that I ask them to fill out has an exact round number. You know, food, 2,000. Uh, mortgage, uh, 3,000. Rates, uh, 5,000. Uh, and um, they're all annual figures, not monthly or fortnightly. And, mm-hmm. and I know instantly that that means they haven't actually gone through the bank statements to get the real facts and data. They've had a bit of a pie-in-the-sky uh, approach to it, which they think is there or thereabouts and close enough. And so what can happen sometimes in the discovery when asked a few questions about those things, uh, then, you know, it, it, it comes out that actually they have no idea where the money's actually going. And we can't move past that point. Because if you don't know what's coming in and what's going out, you have no idea what surplus you have available to allocate towards your goals or outcomes, whether it's investing or paying for holidays. Very difficult to make a an accurate, informed decision Oh, absolutely. How do you move on to the the next strategy, which is investment, if you don't have control of that first strategy? It's just going to unravel and capitulate. Absolutely. I think one of the biggest issues within this cash management strategy is there can be a ball and chain that absolutely drags this one back. What I'm really getting at is debt. And so if you have short-term debt... Mm -hmm. In your cash management strategy, you might be very disciplined, but instead of having money to allocate or surplus from your income and your living expenses that could be allocated towards goals, whether it's holiday, cars, investments, retirement, um, or, or anything else that's important to you, it's actually all going to paying the high interest on the debt that you carry. And so I think before people get excited about, you know, should I be uh, investing more or, or doing more if you haven't got if your cash management has been inappropriate that's led you to having high levels of debt you need to address that issue first absolutely and if if you go to an advisor that says you need to be investing before paying off that short term debt that's sitting at 12 13 14% you're sitting in front of the wrong person move on move on absolutely move on if they if if they're trying to instruct you if even if you've got some spare money mm. and they're trying to get you to invest it and not pay that debt off first when it's at 12, 13, 14%, you're not going to get an investment that gives that return. So why would you why would you be advising that? Why would, why? Because people are more <clears throat> excited about investing than they, than they actually are about paying off high interest debt. It's yeah. a lot more attractive and fun. Uh, I actually have a funny story about this from another advisor. Uh, so a, a prospective client came to this advisor and said, you know, I, I've still got this high credit card debt debt, of course, but I've been given an early inheritance. It's only $10,000, um, but it's actually for my daughter because it was you know, from her granddad. 
And uh, I was just wondering for a bit of advice, what should I do with this $10,000? And the advisor said, well, she should lend it to you. <laughs> if you're prepared to pay 20% interest on whatever you lend to you, I'll lend you some money too and you can pay me instead. <laughs> so tongue in cheek. But yeah. I guess the point I'm trying to get across here is a lot of people will try and skip past strategy one, which is cash management, because it is not fun. Budge, no, Not many people apart from you, Brody, enjoy going through budgeting and analytics and <laughs> it can be very confronting, especially for couples, when you actually need to go through the bank statements and find out how much has been spent at Lululemon every month. How many pairs of tights do you need? <laughs> so <laughs> you can probably tell where that one came from. Yeah, But it can be quite confronting. But to not face this one head on and move straight past to the more exciting area, which is investing, which is what I find a lot of people do, what can end up happening is you might start investing and it might go well for a while, but if your cash management runs out and you all of a sudden need to get your hands on some DOSH, where do you think you're going to take that from? You're going to dip into your investments and your investments should not be a cash account because you've set that up with a long time horizon and if you're dipping in when the markets are down, you're going to, there's going to have negative effects and that's that's why i always say behavior and investing is so important because that's a bad behavior dipping into your into your it it happens sometimes it just happens but Mm -hmm. it it isn't good absolutely and if you can avoid dipping into your investments the other option is they'll draw down on more debt and uh, inhibiting their ability to invest more in the future so i don't mean to harp on too much about this one but uh, it is an area that is so crucial and has been so crucial to me and my wife in order to get that right because we know there's 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 not a lot of point moving forward without addressing mm. that it'll be a ball and chain yeah i guess that's why we do that at fox plan right instead of just being investment advisors where you say how much money do you have to invest what are your goals let's do that mm. it's about the holistic approach where we say well, we need to get this first area sorted first. Otherwise, your behavior is going to ruin the outcomes of the, the investment strategy just just by what you've got in the in the cash management section. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it can also be quite often um, looked over because there's not a lot of financial reward for advisors to address this and spend time with clients because there's no commission built into helping somebody with their cash management and discipline and showing them through their budget unless you can charge them a fee for your time. Yeah, you've got to charge them a fee for, your, for a financial plan rather than I'm going to get paid X amount of commission on this investment exactly. portfolio. And there's nothing wrong with advisors that don't charge fees for their time but only sell products. That's that's If that's the value that they've proposed to the table, that might be appropriate for some people. Oh, absolutely. They, yeah. But for people that have... Uh, issues that need to be actually looked at, such as these cash management issues, buying a product will not get the outcome, in my opinion. Agreed. Do you have any other more critical points to make around your cash management and controlling income and expenditure? Yeah, I think the last thing I want to touch on is having that reserve fund. I don't think we mentioned ah, that. We didn't. So if, if you're going to invest, having that reserve fund set up of three to six months worth of expenses um, is crucial because if something does come up unannounced or unwanted mm. you can dip into that without dipping into your investment so that's part or drawing of drawing down on debt yeah so that's part of the control around cash management is actually having that emergency fund of 
three to six months worth of expenses. If you're in retirement, it's a bit more than that. So, yeah, agree. And control is the key word with uh, the strategy is having the control. Next week in part three, we'll be talking through the importance of investments and having an investment plan and giving certainty with insurances and risk management.